Hey, let me pray for us and thank the Lord. Father, for this time, for the work that you're doing in us individually and for the work that you're doing in this congregation corporately, for the messages of grace and salvation in your word, for the ways that you convict us and encourage us. We give you thanks for all of this. In Christ's name, amen. Welcome to Casket Empty, where we go through all of salvation history. Remember that the Bible is laying out one story, and it's the way that God redeems his people, and it's told through major events of history. Today, we're hearing about the single most terrifying, yeah, the single terrible event of the Old Testament, that Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is burned, and God's people, the, the remnant, goes into exile in Babylon. But we find hope, even in this story, we still find hope. All of the prophets are pointing to the purpose of all of this in Jesus Christ. So that's where we find kind of the center of the story. So with that, ready? Let's review our casket acronym. C stands for? A stands for? Abraham. S stands for? K stands for? E stands for? Exile, which is today. And T stands for? Good. Let's go through some significant dates now. Creation. No dates for that. But what happens in 2100 B.C.? For Abraham. Great. Abraham is called out of the land of Ur, out of the land of his fathers. And then what happens in 1450 BC for Sinai? Great. Moses is called. Uh, it's around that time that the, the Israelites are called out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. And then the period of the kings, what happens in 1050 BC? the first king who is the first king Saul remember the empire is united but in 930 BC what happens split divided kingdom that's where we get Rehoboam and Jeroboam actually Jeroboam to the north Rehoboam to the south and then we get to 586 BC And what happens, tragically? Yes, the exile of Judah. And so that's the event that we're really, that kicks off today. So we're really, I mean, look at these large swaths of time. Period of the Kings is from 1050, 500 years, 1050 to 586. The exile is 70-ish years, depending on how you measure it. The Babylonians come in and their first deportation, where they literally cart people off to Babylon, is in 605 BC. And then about 70 years later, they've been able to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So the exile is sort of a concentrated period. But I believe the exile to be the most, um, as far as pregnant with meaning, it's the most important era of this entire timeline. Prophets are just, are, are giving us all kinds of information about who God is going to send to save his kingdom, or specifically that he will come and return. 
we get so many of those messages, especially from the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. These are really the prophets that we're going to be studying today. Isaiah wasn't in that period? No, great question, Kathleen. Isaiah, who's a southern prophet, is actually the one, even though he's southern, he's really talking to the northern, uh, the, the northern kingdom. And so he's, he's an 8th century prophet. And so the northern kingdom goes into exile by Assyria in 722. So he's about 100 years before Jeremiah and some of these others. Great question. Isaiah is super important, but earlier. Kate. I've always wondered what they were after to, to take over that, that area. Yeah. They didn't, obviously didn't take it over to inhabit the city. They destroyed it. Right. Yeah, that's it's conquest. Conquest is conquest, right? You just kind of, you conquer to conquer. Well, um, what we're going to learn is actually the Babylonians had set up a puppet king, Zedekiah, is really supposed to, you know, sure, the Jews can have their own king. Zedekiah is actually Jehoiachin's uncle, not his son. But he's a puppet king. He's a, he's a vassal. He's supposed to do what the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, says. Well, Zedekiah rebels, and he tries to go into cahoots with Egypt. Well, because of that, Nebuchadnezzar says, fine, we're just going to destroy the city. And so he besieges the city for two years and then destroys the temple. I think a big issue, those of you that know your geography, Israel, Palestine, is sandwiched right in between these incredibly strong empires of northern Africa in Egypt and modern-day Iraq where Assyria and Babylon are. And then eventually, once we get to temple period, the Persians. And so it's kind of, you've got two cats fighting over a mouse. So Israel is really otherwise insignificant, but it's not like it's Norway or something like that. We're off, nobody cares about it. It's, if you can possess this middle ground, you're really challenging the powerful empire on the other side of it. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. 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 So we've, we've kind of learned our ABCs of our empires, right? We've got Assyria, A, Babylon, B, and then remember the first Persian king? His name started with a C. Cyrus. But then after the Persians, what we're going to find is that the Greeks are going to come in in the intertestamental period. And if you take New Testament with me, empty, expectations is about the intertestamental period. What happens in those 400 years? before the New Testament. Well, Alexander the Great in 330 BC comes in and he takes over. And then the Jews, they, in the Maccabean revolt, they take back their territory for a little while, reestablish temple worship. That's why, we, that's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. That's what that event is all about, the reestablishment of the Feast of Lights. And you see Jesus going to Jerusalem in the book of John to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Lights, the Hanukkah. And then... Um, Pompey, the general Pompey from Rome comes in and they take over Jerusalem in 63 BC. So it's, I mean, almost every 150 years, it's like that area belongs to somebody else. And so you can, you can imagine as a first century Jew, 
When you heard that the Messiah has come into Jerusalem to take what is rightfully ours, finally, the Christ is here. He's going to reign. And so you can understand Peter, why he pulls out his sword when somebody comes to challenge Jesus to take him away. He's ready to fight for what was rightfully theirs. They've wanted it for, for centuries and centuries. This is the promised land, right? So a lot of vying. Um, great. With that, just timeline of our... Take a look. We're going to finish off the southern kingdom. Huge period, I know, but we really got to talk about Jeremiah. And then we're into the exile. Next week is the last week of November, which means, what are we doing? Courtyard Fellowship. And then we're back December 5th for Temple. Then December 12th, we're going to review. On December 19th, Jerry, Pastor Jerry, is going to do an Advent Academy of Faith class. There's just one class happening that day in the West Room. If you have questions about what does Advent really lead us toward as God's people, Jerry is the right person to hear on this. He's just got, got a great mind on it. What's the date that? that class will be December 19. Yep. So you'll see me on the 5th and the 12th, and then the following week is the 19th. And then it's the day after Christmas after that. So uh, we'll be eating figgy pudding somewhere, I'm sure. Hey, let's review from figgy pudding. We'll be eating our figgy pudding. Some review from last week. What do we call the name of the northern kingdom? Somebody? Illegitimate. What did you say? Illegitimate crown? That's the red crown. Kathleen, you remember this stuff, the red crown. Kathleen took this with me three years ago. Way to go, the red crown. But what do we call this northern kingdom? Israel. 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 What do we call the southern kingdom? Judah. Judah, very good. What is considered the, who was considered the worst king of the northern kingdom? Ahab. You're Moby Dick. Ahab, and he's married to Jezebel, who leads them into all sorts of worship of Canaanite gods. Yeah. How about this, the worst king of the south? We ended class last week talking about him. It starts with an M. But Manasseh, thanks, John. Manasseh. Yeah, Manasseh is pretty much the worst, but Ahaz was also really bad. You can almost take your pick. There's a lot of really bad kings. Valerie. One of, one of Joseph's brothers was, oh, wait, wait, Ephraim and Manasseh, you're right, yeah. Was it that Manasseh? No. Great question. Just his namesake. Yeah. So there's a territory called Manasseh after one of Joseph's sons. Nice. But is that Kathleen? Manasseh that was forgiven? He was vindicated? Yes. <gasps> Kathleen, get up and teach this. Um, oh, I thought, never mind, that was a different question. Um, do you remember Manasseh repents? And then what does Manasseh do after he was taken into exile by the Assyrians, but he's taken to the city of Babylon, and there he repents, calls on the name of the Lord, and God reestablishes him as king. And what does he do once he gets back? What does he do to his um, altars, to the idols? Destroys them. He, he destroys them. He reestablishes worship of the Lord God. He does the, we were talking about doing the hard thing when we repent, actually following through with it. Manasseh really shows genuine repentance because he takes action to obliterate the construction of sin in his life. Who are some of the kings of Judah who trust the Lord? Do you remember some? 
Not necessarily good, but Josiah, great. Who else? Hezekiah, great. I think those are the two biggies. And a couple ones right up front, Asa, thank you, and Jeho, Jehoshaphat. Those are kind of the, our four that really trust the Lord. Okay, still in the southern kingdom, let's talk Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesies during the last 40 years of Jerusalem, of, of Judah. He ministers during the reign of Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Five kings. One of them only rules for a month, though. So, like, they're pretty short reigns. Jeremiah, something to note, when you read the prophet Jeremiah, he does not read chronologically. So if you read Daniel or Jeremiah, read the notes at the beginning of those books because they hop around quite a bit. The heart, see this heart with the law in it? The heart is going to be a key image used by Jeremiah. He mentions the heart more than 50 times in his prophecy. You can read about the heart on the back of your timeline if you want. In the first half of Jeremiah, which is 20 chapters, the first half, Jeremiah exposes the sin of Judah. Here's what they're doing. Judah's worshiping Baal, just like the north was. Their idolatry is rampant. They're sacrificing their children. They're disobeying God's law. They have broken the covenant. Which covenant is he referring to? Covenant with? Yes, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses. They've broken all of the, the Mosaic Law. Jeremiah 3 says, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Israel's like a goody two-shoes compared to your sins, Judah. God still calls Judah to return to him, but they don't. So judgment will come, and he says destruction is coming. God, God tells Jeremiah at the beginning of the book, Go throughout Jerusalem and see if you can find a single person who is righteous. And, Jerusalem, and Jeremiah is left with nothing. Can't find anyone. And so we hear, from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Jeremiah 8. The Apostle Paul is going to have the same view of humanity when he writes the book of Romans. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. When Jeremiah surveys the sinfulness of his people, he, ex he exclaims, this is why they call him the weeping prophet, Jeremiah 9, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night. By the way, Jeremiah is really young when God calls him to prophesy. He's only a youth. Like I do a kid. Like a kid. I, I do not envy this man. A rough life, a lot of tears shed because of the sins of his people. Even more reason to respect him because Jesus went into the temple at age 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of following in the, the youth steps. Jeremiah announces the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. The law of Moses. If you look here, the Mosaic Covenant, remember it's bilateral. If you do your part, God says, I'll do my part. If you do your part, I will bless you. But if you disobey, I'll curse you. You can read specifically about the curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28. 
Well, Jeremiah pretty much enumerates these exact curses. He says, the sword will slay, dogs will drag off dead bodies, birds of the sky will pick at the, um, will pick at the flesh and devour and destroy, people will die of deadly disease, their bodies will not be buried, there will be such famine that parents will eat their children, the temple will be destroyed, the land will become desolate, many people will be slaughtered and others will go into exile, the nations will look at Jerusalem and hiss and shake their heads because the city will become a place of horror and astonishment. So this poses a really critical theological question. Remember how we talked about the air conditioner? Imagine it's warm in your house and so you install an air conditioner and you turn it on. And then you're having trouble, you don't feel like the, the house is getting any cooler, the air conditioner doesn't seem to be doing its job. And so you invite somebody who knows something about air conditioners to come in and that person said, oh, your air conditioner isn't broken. That's not an air conditioner, that's a heater. And you're like, wait, what is it? Hang on a second. Not only is it not doing its job, it's doing the opposite of what I asked it to do. That's the problem God is having with his people now. He, he called them out of a land and said, I will be with you and you'll be a people distinct because you worship me alone, only have one God. You'll not bow down to idols and people will know me by your conduct. My character will be your character. But not only do they not uphold that, they're doing the exact opposite. They're worshiping idols. They're, and so the nations around them, rather than doing what Zechariah said they would do, where it would, every Gentile would grab a Jew by the robe and say, let us come to the temple of the Lord with you and worship your God. That's what Zechariah says. Instead, what do they do when they walk by and see Jerusalem? They hiss and they curse it. Jerusalem has become a curse rather than the blessing that God said he, they would be to the whole world. So if God's people have become a curse, how is God going to fix this situation? We eventually get the answers through Paul. When Paul looks to Jesus Christ and the death he dies... It's vital to recognize that the type of death he dies is that Jesus is hung on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death by hanging him on a tree. Deuteronomy 21. Moses says though, that his body should not hang overnight because someone hanging on a tree is a curse, cursed by God. So now that we see that God's law places his people under his wrath because they become a curse, we find the solution in that Jesus becomes the curse for his people. This whole idea is called the exchange curse. That's why the bedrock of our faith, friends, is that Jesus died the death that we should have died. And he lives the life that we can't live. It's an exchange. It's a substitution. And so if you ever hear this kind of big theological term, substitutionary atonement. Atonement means how does God make us one with him at one minute, atonement? How does he make us one? He substitutes Jesus to take our place. So that's why we really have to understand that the curses that we deserve fell on Jesus instead. 
Valerie. Are you saying why did he send the law in the first place? Yeah, there's a lot about this in Romans and Galatians. That's where I feel like we find some of these answers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's important to know that God is eternally redeemer. He sends Jesus to redeem his people, but God, God has always been redeemer. Job, one of the very first books of the Old Testament says, I know that my redeemer lives and, and in my flesh, I will see God. Job knows that he will rise again because God is going to save him. He doesn't know exactly how. He wasn't alive at the event of Jesus. We weren't alive at the event of Jesus. He looks forward to Jesus's death we look back to Jesus' death, but we all find our salvation in Christ. Can I say something? Kathleen. In the book of Matthew, remember, as Jesus was resurrected, and all those bodies came out of the grave, and people saw those spirits. And, the, and it says in Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew, those that did good will go to heaven, those that did evil will go to hell. So right then and there, their spirit was resurrected. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's before, they, those were the people before Christ that were mm -hmm. buried. Mm -hmm. I figured during the three days of his death, he went down and spoke to them. We were talking about that, weren't we? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that word stumbling block, I think that's really important when we think about the law. Um, Romans says, seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, the Jews stumbled over the stumbling block, right? So what's really important when we look back on the law is the law is our tutor, Paul says, training us to rely on the grace that will come in Jesus Christ. If this story, friends, is not enough to tell you you can't do it on your own, I don't, I don't know what else to do. So what we're really going to find with Jeremiah, he's saying what these people need is a new heart. For some reason, friends, I woke up this morning and some psalm says, um, incline my heart, what? incline my heart to do your will. Is that it? Incline my heart to do your will. It was like the first thing. And it was like, yes, I can't even do, I, it's not about effort. God has to change my heart. He has to incline my heart. And so Ezekiel 37 says, I will take out their heart of stone. I'll give them a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within them. I'll cause them to stand uprightly and walk in my ways. There's no other way to do it apart from God's 
supernatural work by his spirit within us. So God saves us from sin at the cross, shows us what a righteous life looks like in Jesus, but empowers us to do it through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is the issue with the human heart, huh? Esther? Okay, to read by faith. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Children of Abraham in that he was made righteous by his faith in the same way we are. I'm going to move us on. Hold the thoughts. We can maybe talk afterward. Um, because... Israel goes into exile for 70 years. Jeremiah actually tells his people that. So here's what's important. God is telling Jeremiah, or God's telling his people through Jeremiah, my people should yield to my discipline. I'm sending the Babylonians to discipline you. So go into exile, and Jeremiah says, here's the promise. You'll actually return in 70 years. In a generation and a half, you'll be able to come back and rebuild. He says this. How does he illustrate it? God tells Jeremiah, go and buy this plot of land. You could buy land really cheap in Jerusalem when the city's being destroyed, by the way, <laughs> because you'll be able to return, or your progeny will be able to return and, and build on that land. That's our promise. But meanwhile, the other prophets that are not of the Lord are saying, no, 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 we've got to fight the Babylonians. God has given this land, you know, land forever. That's what Zedekiah buys into. No, we've got to resist the Babylonians. And so God uses the, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar to, to crush them. Yeah. Hope will come after judgment. God will make a new covenant. Yes, great. Okay, Jehoahaz, everybody say number 16. Number he does evil. Jehoiakim, everybody say number 17. Number he does evil. Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk says this. Habakkuk 2.4. Yeah, minor prophet. The righteous will live by faith. Just kind of all you need to know for that one. Okay. Jehoiachin, everybody say number 18. He does evil. Um, and then he goes into exile in 597. You'll notice that's the second deportation. Along with Jehoiachin, Ezekiel goes into exile. All of his prophecies about the temple are going to come while he's in Babylon. Daniel is taken into exile in the first deportation as one of the young men. When the Babylonians come into Jerusalem, they're going to leave the poor in the city, and they're going to take off all of the young men and women that seem to be smart um, and handsome. That's basically it. And so Daniel and his cronies are going to be led off in their youth. You know, he might be 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, but that means when you kind of do the timeline on this, by the time he's thrown into the lion's den by King Darius, we see all these, yeah, we see all these children books and, and Daniel's like 20. Daniel's maybe 80 years old yeah. when he's thrown into the lion's den, yeah. when you kind of do the math on that. So um, he's a young man and... It's amazing how God has kept him faithful. Remember, Joel uses... Oh, did you see that? These are really important. Look at my... Come on. Boom, boom. The Babylonians are going to invade like locusts invade. That's the imagery that he uses. God pours out his spirit, though, later. Um, Joel is the prophet that 
Paul quotes at Pentecost. P, Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes in the upper room, Paul, no, not Paul, Peter. Peter quotes Joel and says, oh, your young men will have visions and your, your old men will dream dreams or whatever it is. God is going to pour out his spirit in the last days. So the very last event after the Messiah is that the spirit will come. And the only other event after the spirit comes is Jesus's return. Therefore, we are in the last days or the latter days. Not last in terms of quantity, last in terms of quality. It's the last type of days. There is no other major event in God's redemption plan than Jesus coming again to consummate his kingdom. The first deportation happens in 605. Nebuchadnezzar, um, in this same year, has a very successful campaign against the kingdom of Egypt. They win a giant battle in 605 called the Battle of Carchemish. And at this point, the crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar, is this strong new general king. And he comes in, uh, establishes that he will be in control of Jerusalem, but he doesn't destroy it for about 20 years. So he takes Daniel and others into exile in 605. Here's the Babylonian, you can see the cat and mouse stuff here. Here's Judah, Mediterranean Sea, Syria, modern day Syria, right? Lebanon, Jordan up here. And then this is modern day Iraq. You've got the Euphrates River and the Tigris River. And then all of this was called Babylonia. This was their kingdom, but one city was Babylon. Remember that um, these are sort of city states. So they, <laughs> you've got Babylonian armies but they're not culturally Babylonian. The only thing that's really Babylonian is, is Babylon, okay? And then the Medo-Persians are going to come from this area in 70 years, you know. Cyrus is going to come and destroy Babylon when King Belshazzar is in charge. And, but that's not going to happen until 539 BC, okay? The second exile happens in 597. There goes Ezekiel. There goes uh, Jehoiachin, and we're going to notice that the blue line that shows that God's messianic king almost fades away, but Jehoiachin is allowed to live in the king's palace in Babylon, and his grandson, Zerubbabel, will actually come back with the exiles back to Jerusalem, and he'll be the new governor of Jerusalem under the Persians' rule, and they'll start building the temple. Zedekiah is the last king. Everybody say number 19. Great. Uh, last king on the throne. He does evil. Surprise. He breaks covenant with God and with Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem is going to be attacked and the king will fall under judgment, which leads to the exile. The dates. 586, destruction of the temple. 539, they can return. Here are the books of the Bible for exile. Jeremiah. Lamentations. Uh, traditionally, has, has said that it was written by Jeremiah. You get five chapters in Lamentations. Each one is very distinct. So it's almost like maybe Jeremiah wrote one of them, or maybe he took the accounts, five accounts of people that were there, and he sort of packaged it all together. But he's lamenting, the important part is he's lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah is in there too. If you ever hear a sermon on Obadiah, it'll be the last sermon you hear on Obadiah. It's a chapter long. But actually, if you've been here for a while, Jerry would have preached on it. 
because he hit all of the minor prophets. All right, let's talk Ezekiel. God's presence leaving the temple is the single most terrible event in Jewish history. I'm going to just show you that again. God's presence leaving the temple. Um, Ezekiel is exiled to Babylon, and his central theme is divine presence. Divine presence. Ezekiel's call begins with a vision of the Lord's glory. His greatest agony is seeing that glory depart the temple. There's a recurring theme in Ezekiel that the Lord, Yahweh, is always acting to reveal and uphold his glory. The phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord, reverberates all throughout this prophet. The first 24 chapters, it's a very long prophet, takes place before the fall of Jerusalem, between 593 and 586. And this portion is really significant. Ezekiel has a vision of all of the abominations taking place which will result in the destruction of the temple. All of it culminates the year before Jerusalem is destroyed in 587, the year, that same year, Ezekiel's wife dies. It's a tragedy which symbolizes the loss of joy and pride with the loss of the temple. Ezekiel also announces destruction against other nations during this time. Ezekiel learns about the destruction of Jerusalem from a refugee who comes to Babylon and tells Ezekiel what has happened. He prophesies it, and then he hears it secondhand. Ezekiel is a bit of a hybrid as a prophet. He's a southern prophet because of his warnings toward Judah before the exile, but his prophecy also extends years into the exile in the city of Babylon. Turn to Ezekiel in your Bibles. I'm going to get mine. Imagine that. Now let's look at Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel 3 verses 4 through 7. Listen to what this says about the human heart. Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 4 through 7. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel has a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. From the outset, we see the need for God to give his people a new heart, a new spirit within them. It's what Israel needs and what every human heart needs. Ezekiel is called to be a watchman. He's sounding the alarm when Israel is going to be attacked. Before the destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel is mute. He literally cannot speak any words except the words that the Lord gives him. As with many other prophets, Ezekiel is like a living object lesson. Do you guys know what object lessons are? Ezekiel's whole life is like an image of what God is telling his people. For instance, God tells him to bring, build a little model of Jerusalem and then besiege it. And so he does so really dramatically. Ezekiel is tied to the ground in the middle of the public square in Babylon to symbolically bear Israel's sin. 
He bakes his own bread over dung to show that Israel has been, become unclean. He shaves off his hair and beard and burns it as a sight, as an image of coming judgment. The prophet thereby announces that the inhabitants of Judah will be judged by fire, the sword, and scattering, Ezekiel 5 says. After this section, Ezekiel reckons with his most tragic vision. In chapter 10, God's glory leaves the temple. The prophet is to understand the impact Israel's actions have on the divine presence. God will not share his glory with idols. Right before this happens, in chapter 9, Ezekiel talks about how he has a vision of all of the elders of Jerusalem. This is before the destruction of the temple. All of the elders of Jerusalem standing in the open temple area facing east with their backs to the temple um, house, worshiping the sun. They're in the very center of worship of the Lord in the temple court, and they're worshiping a sun god. Ezekiel watches in terror as God's presence arises from the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies, goes to the threshold of the temple, and then his presence moves from the threshold to the eastern gate of the city, And from there, it goes to the mountains to the east. Ezekiel sees God's presence leave the temple. And here are the implications. Don't worry about God is gracious. We'll get to that. Exodus 25 says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So they're going to build the tabernacle, right? Way back in Exodus. When God called a people out of slavery... He said, you're going to be distinct because I dwell with you, being present with them. Without God's presence, there's nothing distinct about any people group. But now, because of such blatant and willful rebellion, the holy God is going to leave. From this time forth, there will be a prayer for the return for God's presence. God be among your people, Ezekiel says. Their prayer will be for one to come, Emmanuel, God with us. That will be their prayer. What we'll find next week with temple, or in a couple of weeks, when they rebuild the temple in 516, the old men are crying because they remember what the old temple was like, and it was full of the presence of God. When Solomon dedicates the temple way back here in, you know, 940 BC or something like that, he prays to the Lord with open hands, and God's presence fills the temple. It's called his glory cloud, his Shekinah glory. It's, it's a cloud. Well, here, when the temple is dedicated, no glory cloud fills the temple. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, the prayer is, God, you have to come back and be with us. Emmanuel, God, with us. Ezekiel is used as a mouthpiece to make known all of Jerusalem's abominations. There's this great little parable that he tells in chapter 23 about two sisters, Ahola and Aholiba. And Ahola is signifying Samaria, the capital of the north. Aholiba is signifying Jerusalem, the capital of the south. And um, he begins by describing the harlotry of Ahola, who lusted after the Assyrians and Egyptians so that finally her nakedness was uncovered, her sons and daughters were taken away, and she was killed by the sword. This is a poetic description of what happens when Assyria sacks Samaria. 
But Ezekiel then observes that a holy buzz harlotries, Jerusalem's, increased beyond those of her older sister. The northern kingdom, can you believe this? With Jeroboam's golden calves set up in Bethel and Dan for 300 years, with King Ahab, Moby Dick, with Jezebel in that bloody city of Jezreel, Aholibah makes her look like a giddy, goody two-shoes. Um, so what are they doing that's so bad? Ezekiel enumerates. They shed blood, there's idolatry, treating father and mother with contempt, oppressing the alien, failing to treat the fatherless and widow appropriately, profaning the Sabbath, acting slanderously, committing acts of lewdness, uncovering a father's nakedness, violating a woman who is unclean in her menstrual impurity, sexual misconduct with the neighbor's wife, a daughter-in-law or a sister, taking bribes, taking interest, oppressing others, and acting dishonestly for personal gain. Ezekiel 22. Yeah, right. What, what goes around comes around, right? Yeah. Very true. Yes, very true. Absolutely. Ezekiel sees that the house of God is condemned by the law and thus under the sentence of death. But then we get to Ezekiel 36. Can you turn there? Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Uh, Actually, start at verse 25. This is the Lord speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will, pour my, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will make provision for the forgiveness of sins. God's law will no longer be engraved on stone, but on human hearts. His law will be renewed internally, a heart that is empowered by God's spirit to obey his laws. This is the idea of vivification. If you've ever heard of mortification, vivification. God really asks us to do two things and he enables us to do things. We're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Mortification of sin and alive to the fruit that comes from life in the spirit. And God gives Ezekiel a picture of this life-giving spirit In the next chapter, the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel stands in the middle of a valley filled with dry bones, signifying that the fact fact that the house of Israel is dead in their transgression and sin. Remember, maybe I didn't tell you this, Ezekiel is a priest. He comes from a priestly family of the Levites. And he starts prophesying when he's 30 years old. That's the year when a priest starts going on duty. That's when he receives the word of the Lord. And he, as a priest, is never to be around death. And here he is, God has put him in the valley of dry bones, literally in a graveyard. So you think of the defilement, the impurity that he's experiencing. 
And as the vision continues, we learn that only God can bring life to those who are dead. It's accomplished by the vivifying power of the Holy Spirit. That's called resurrection faith. God asks Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he gives the right answer. Lord, you know. (laughs) And then there's a rattling and a great wind and an earthquake. Frankly, it sounds a lot like what happens after Jesus dies on the cross. And bone comes to bone, sinew is attached to flesh, and these dead bodies, these corpses, rise. Ezekiel 37, 11 says this. Then God said to me, son of man, that's God's term for Ezekiel here, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. So all those people that were destroyed were brought back to life? Uh, This is a vision. So this doesn't happen in reality. Ezekiel is having a vision in the spirit of this happening. It's a a symbol. It's a symbol, but not a historical event. Oh, I thought it was real. No, he's he's in the spirit here. No. I thought that was real. They put it in movies and everything. But look, look more deeply into it, because I think I've been wrong before. I was mistaken that time. I thought I was wrong, but maybe I'm wrong. Resurrection faith. How did Adam rise from the dust? God puts his spirit into him. How did God promise to Abraham, whose body was as good as dead, and his wife was past the age of childbearing, that you will have a child? Resurrection faith, life from death. How did God raise up? David's descendant, thereby anticipating Jesus being raised from the dead, the spirit who resurrects. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that this spirit of the resurrection is exactly the same spirit that is at work in those who are in God's church. Therefore, the Lord is the creator God and his people are characterized by resurrection faith. They're fully convinced that God is able to raise people from the dead. Two things on this. Maybe you have a testimony, you have a story where before you came to life in Jesus, you would characterize your previous life as death. It was just, it didn't lead anywhere. It wasn't eternal. And then coming to faith in Christ by God's spirit, what you're experiencing now is what Jesus calls life abundant. There is new meaning. There's new purpose and outlook. It's like I have been born again or born from above. That is sort of, that's one resurrection. But we are also, the Bible says, going to experience a literal, physical resurrection from the dead. These bodies will be glorified. They'll be perfected. They're no longer decaying and falling apart because of sin and and death. That is when we'll, we'll actually experience a living resurrection. That's a faith that we have in the resurrection to come as we're experiencing a resurrection faith even now. 
That's Daniel. I mean, Ezekiel. God is gracious, slow to anger. His judgment finally comes, though. The curses of the Mosaic Covenant come upon Judah. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar takes the people of Judah into exile. The Babylonian king kills many. He destroys Jerusalem and the temple. Jerusalem becomes an object of horror among the nations. The last king, Zedekiah, is blinded after he has all of his sons murdered before his eyes. And Gedaliah is set up as governor in Jerusalem. Only the poor are allowed to remain in Jerusalem. Jeremiah laments over the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, let this sink in. I'm just quoting Lamentations. Happier are the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. The hand of compassionate women, excuse me, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. Then, amazingly, right in the middle of this, in chapter 3 of five chapters, there's a proclamation. Great is the faithfulness of God. Remember that whole um, sin, judgment, grace? We hear that grace here because even in the midst of destruction, Jeremiah says, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. A ray of light in the midst of darkness. Uh, you can read Obadiah on your own. It's about judgment coming to a non-Jewish nation, the nation of Edom. That's where Edom is. What do you mean by non-Jewish? Yeah, so um, remember Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Jacob become the Jews, the 12 tribes of Israel. The descendants of Esau become the nation of Edom. Well, while Jerusalem is being destroyed, the Edomites are doing this. <laughs> Look at you, I can't believe, you should have seen that coming. Well, Obadiah is a Jewish prophet and God says, Edom, destruction will come to you as well. So they're, they're held accountable for their sins, not just the Jews. So um, my teacher would have us remember Obadiah, Obad-Edom. Obadiah, Obad-Edom. Um, the prophets during this time announce restoration after the exile, though. God promises to restore his people. And there's five symbols that I'm going to want to ingrain in your head. Stars like the heavens, a gift, the law will be written on their hearts. The, uh, the, the, um, the blue crown, the messianic line still stands and the temple will still have a place in God's restoration. Hmm, interesting. Let's talk about the first symbol, stars like stars in the heavens. 
This is a promise through the prophets during this time. God will bring Israel back to the land and multiply them. Remember, who does God tell your descendants will multiply like the stars in the heavens? Abraham. Abraham. God has not forgotten his promise to the patriarchs. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both say that God will gather his people as a shepherd gathers a scattered flock. The desolate land will become fertile like the Garden of Eden, Ezekiel 36 says. And a worldwide people of God will worship the God of Abraham. Isaiah, the Psalms, Jeremiah, and Malachi all say this. Secondly, God will make a new covenant. And when you think new covenant, think the covenant of Abraham, but fully realized. Jesus is not separate from the covenant of Abraham. He's the means of, of getting to. But we didn't see clearly what that covenant really, how it was going to be brought about until Jeremiah and Ezekiel start talking about a new covenant. Hebrews 7 and 8, the book of Hebrews, really talks about the old covenant being a shadow of the realities that are fulfilled in Jesus. And so you hear about a priesthood in the Old Testament, the perfect priest is Jesus. You hear about prophets in the Old Testament, the perfect prophet is Jesus. You hear about sacrifices in the law of Moses, the perfect sacrifice is Jesus. Everything is perfected in him. He's the reality. Old Testament was a shadow. God will put his law in their heart. We've already talked about that. God will give Israel a new spirit and God will forgive the sins of his people. This promise of forgiveness stands at the center of the better promises of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. Friends, in none of these covenants, none of the covenants was forgiveness fully talked about. But now, suddenly in the New Covenant, it's forgiveness that God's people need. They need a new heart and to be purified from, from their sin. Hebrews said, the blood of oxes and bulls could never atone for sin. You need the blood of God. That's a God-sized job. Right, right. For the Messiah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It says he desired yeah. forgiveness and mercy. Yeah. He created all animals. It says that in the psalm. Yeah. I created all animals, and if I wanted to kill them, I could kill them at right. any time. Right, right. The, the yeah. cows on a thousand hills belong to me or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, right. He never wanted it that way, but when mankind fell, yeah. They had to give up something they loved, which was animals. Right, right. Yeah. Um, And we've got our blue crown. God's righteous king in the line of David is still coming. God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. When you read the book of Acts, there's a couple of huge events that happen. One is um, on the day of Pentecost. Remember, the day of Pentecost was actually celebrating the Jews' arrival at Mount Sinai but all of the Jews were gathered together in one place in Jerusalem in the upper room and the Jews received the spirit. But just seven chapters later in Samaria, another Pentecost happens where the, where the, the Samaritans, these people that are half breeds and, and worshiping the wrong God, they call on the name of the Lord and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then two chapters after that, it falls on, a Ro- on the Roman Cornelius's house. He's got a, b- a bunch of Roman Gentiles. They receive the spirit of God. God pours out his spirit on all flesh. And Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. I think this is an important one. Ezekiel has a vision in the last few chapters of of Ezekiel of a restored temple. But it's 
It's, a super, it's the lengthiest description of the temple we have. And what's interesting is the temple doesn't exist at that point. But this is not the temple that is rebuilt in the temple period. It's way more vast. And we see, because of its massive scale, also there's symbolic language like a river that flows out of the dwelling place of, of God to nourish the city and all of its inhabitants. And only the righteous remain and there's no more evil at this temple. So it's like, it's symbolizing the book of Revelation. Yes, exactly, exactly. So in the, cor- in the full course of our study, we're actually going to see that in our yet to come period, that God does not in he doesn't intend to dwell in a temple made by human hands. Instead, God and the Son, God the Son will build his temple. His believers become his dwelling place because he inhabits them by his spirit. That's why you read 1 Peter and it talks about God is building us into a temple. In Revelation 21, John has a similar vision of the new Jerusalem, but he doesn't see any temple building. He says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's the same city envisioned by Ezekiel. The last words in the book of Ezekiel are these. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. God plans to reestablish his presence eternally. Great. We're going to put a pin in it right there, and we're going to save Daniel for a couple of weeks to come. Um, But let's do just a bit of review before we go. All right, true or false? Jeremiah's message to God's people was to resist the Babylonian invasion. True or false? False. What was Jeremiah's message? Go with them because it's God's discipline, God's judgment, right? Yes, that's right. You're coming back in 70 years. True or false? Israel and Judah were surprised by their exiles because God failed to warn them about their sin. Where did we first hear about these curses? Way back here in in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? With Moses. So, yeah. 500 years later? Almost a thousand years later? I don't know. Who were some of the young Jewish men taken to Babylon who would be influential? Great. Great. Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, whose names have changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Good. And we'll get to Daniel uh, later. Let's pray. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Lord, we thank you for the ray of hope that it is to just hear your word. We heard it now. We heard it in the service uh, at length. And Lord, I would pray that you'd continue to be gracious to us as we open your word, that you direct and guide us, cause our faith in you to run deep because we abide that much more closely to you each day. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the God who brings life from death, resurrection, faith, through the gift of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, friends.